Well, this is not a difficult story for us to understand. Um, we've all been children, and many of us have been parents, and we know what it's like to say you'll do something and then to fail to do it, or to refuse to do something, and then on second thought, to decide to go and do it after all. And it's not a situation that's limited to the relationships between parents and children either. It's a, it's a part of the fabric of all of our lives. We know what it's like from both sides. But there are a few things that the story doesn't tell us. For one thing, we don't know why the first son refused his father's request to go and work in the vineyard. It seems a reasonable enough request on the face of it. But there may have been some strained relations between the father and the son. They may have just had an argument and, and were angry. The son may have refused to go out of defiant spitefulness. But we really have no way of knowing. All we know is that he first refused, and then he changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard anyway. We have, I think, a better picture of the relationship between the father and his second son. He reminds me of Eddie Haskell. <laughs> I see that at least some of you remember Eddie Haskell. <clears throat> if you ever watched Leave it to Beaver back years ago, or you're a devotee of one of those nostalgia stations, you may remember the young man who was always so polite to the faces of the parents but was the essence of teenage rebellion as soon as the adults weren't there. Well, I think that the second son in Jesus' story is at least a little like Eddie Haskell. He calls his father, sir, when he says he was going to work. And actually, the word there that is translated sir, when used in reference to Jesus, is usually translated Lord. He agrees to go, but he never does. We don't know if he ever really even intended to go or if he was just saying that he would. And to look at the other characters in this story, we can't fault the religious leaders too heavily in this exchange. It, it isn't that they never did the right thing but only gave it lip service. They saw themselves as the righteous ones in their society. They did what they thought God wanted God's people to do. They obeyed the law. They lived righteous lives. They kept themselves isolated from people whom their society considered unclean. But in the midst of their piety, they made two serious omissions. They failed to see their own need for God's freely given grace. And they denied that grace to others who didn't live up to their strict standards. They were blinded by their own commitment to obedience. But the upshot of the whole thing, as Jesus tells the story, is which one finally did his father's will. The religious leaders give the obvious answer that the son who finally went and did the work in the vineyard, even though he had first refused, was the one who had done the right thing. Actually, Neither one of the sons is a great example. The ideal would be to agree to go and then follow through. 
But we all know that life and our performance in it is often far from ideal. Try as we might to make the right commitments and follow through on them, we don't always make it. Sometimes we say no at the outset and then have second thoughts. Sometimes we agree to do something and then other things get in the way. But I think that one of the things, at least, that Jesus is saying to us today has to do with promises. We recognize that promises in and of themselves can never take the place of performance. Good intentions are great, but we all know which road is paved with them. Fine words are never a substitute for fine deeds. Words can be cheap. They can cost us nothing. And I think also that in recent times, obedience has become a bad word. It seems incompatible with good words like independence, individualism, and personal freedom. But obedience is something that we Christians cannot ignore or sweep under the rug of individual freedoms. There's a a continuing tension between God's freely offered grace and the demand that persons who accept that grace be faithful and obedient. When people make a commitment to faith and life in Christ through this church, they make certain affirmations and promises. They affirm their acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and and their trust in Him to tell them the truth about God and about life. And then they promised to live as His disciples insofar as they are able, obeying His word and showing His love. They promised to be faithful members of this congregation and to recognize their need for the fellowship of Christ's people wherever they may be. It's true, these promises, like all the other promises in life, can be nothing more than words. Unless there is a deeper commitment and some outer evidence of that deeper commitment, then it's difficult to tell if discipleship is actually taking place. There must be something that happens in our hearts as well as in our heads, for that commitment to take shape. It's kind of like this. Johnny's exasperated piano teacher throws up her hands and says, Johnny, you just haven't got it right. Johnny is holding his hands in just the way that he has been told. His fingering is exceptional. He has memorized the piece perfectly. He has hit all the right notes with dreadful accuracy. But his heart's not in it. Just his fingers. What he's playing is music, certainly, but it's, it's never going to start voices singing or feet tapping. Well... The scribes and the Pharisees were playing it by the book. They didn't slip up on a single do or don't, but they were getting it all wrong. Righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom, has to do with getting it right. And when you play it 
the way it's supposed to be played, there won't be a still foot or a dry eye in the house. Getting it right involves the commitment of more than just our words. It requires the commitment of our whole selves, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've been thinking a lot over the last week or so about what it takes, what it takes to keep a promise alive. And I've come to at least some preliminary conclusions. First of all, I think that keeping a promise alive requires an underlying trust and confidence in the one who shares that promise with you. You don't feel much inclination to keep a promise to someone you don't even trust, someone you don't think would keep a promise to you. And secondly, keeping a promise alive requires some ritual remembrances. Marriages have anniversaries. And some people even go through a a restatement of their vows at some point. In the fellowship of the church, we are urged to remember our own baptisms every time someone receives the sacrament of baptism. When new members meet with the session and affirm the promises I mentioned just a few moments ago, the session members hear those promises again and can renew their own commitment to them. Thirdly, our promises need a strong tie to our hope for the future. In a few weeks, we will all have a chance to look to the future of our church and make some promises. Our time and talent commitments and our financial pledges to the church's annual operating budget. As we prepare ourselves to make those promises and those commitments, It's important that we be in prayer, individually and together, asking God what God wants us to do with our promises and commitments. And finally, every promise needs some joyous experience to stay alive. Marriages need vacations and quiet evenings of conversation and playing out in the backyard with the kids or the grandkids and the comfort of companionship. For the church, I'm convinced that worship, what we're doing right here and right now, is the setting in which the promises of God and our own promises are nurtured, remembered, and experienced anew, and from which we are sent out to be the bearers of promise for the whole world. We are a people to whom promises have been made and who make promises, joyously remembering and faithfully keeping them is a part of our discipleship. Amen.